0: Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. To we hope you enjoy the sermon. Um, I'm going to read the text this week. Before I do, just a reminder, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus showing his people what a community of God's people would look like in this world, saying, this is... If, if we begin to live out the kingdom of God in this world, this is what it looks like. Uh, everybody lives in a bunch of communities. And being in a community helps us figure out who we are. We go connect with communities to try to figure out who we are. Sometimes it helps us know who we are. Sometimes we get more confused. Am I the person I am around my sports team? Am I the person I am around my lab? Am I the person that I am in my major? Am I the person I am at RUF? Right? Sometimes we get confused. And if you're a Christian, if, you're, if you follow Jesus, if you rest in Him, your most fundamental community is the people of God. And This is Jesus saying this is what people are like. If you're not a Christian, if you're here and you're a skeptic and you're not sure what you think yet, uh, the barrier to entry into God's community is probably different than you thought. Um, the barrier to entry into His community is nothing more than coming to God and asking for grace and rest. The barrier to entrance into God's people has never been moral performance. That's one of the biggest misconceptions about Christianity in the Bible. That has never been a a barrier into God's community. The barrier into God's community has always been, this is the barrier, an unwillingness to simply come to God and ask for help. Um, And so Jesus tells us that we can come to Him when we're tired and we're weary and we're weighted down and He will give us rest And tonight, he speaks about rest from anxiety. So I'm going to read uh, these verses from Matthew 6, and we'll talk about anxiety. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Therefore I tell you, don't be anxious about your life." What you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food, and is not your body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet our Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Which of you being anxious can add a single hour to a span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these." But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore don't be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your Heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day. For today is its own trouble. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word from Jesus. Uh, we all harbor all kinds of anxiety. We know it. We hide it well. Sometimes we don't hide it well. We don't rest. And I pray that we would find rest in Jesus' tonight. Give us the ability to believe what you say. Teach us, Father God, be with this Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen um usually during the introduction i make a big case for why this is an important topic i just didn't even prepare one because you just have to say are you anxious and we all immediately connect with the idea of anxiety and anxious one of the first things people told me about when i came here i'm sure all of y'all heard about as well is the stanford duck syndrome right which is just our way of saying we look polished on the outside, but we're all really, really anxious people, right? The duck is calm on the surface and furious underneath. So I didn't think I needed to say like, hey, I think anxiety might be a thing for y'all. I think we all kind of like know that, right? Maybe you've considered you're anxious. Um, so we're just launching right in. <laughs> what is anxiety? <laughs> it's when you're speaking in public and people laugh at you. That's part of it. Uh when they continue to laugh at a joke that doesn't seem to be required that much. Later. but Thanks, Chris. I feel funny. Actually, I kind of like it. Um, what is anxiety? Here, I'm just gonna, here's the definition that we're going to work with that I think this text and the rest of Scripture supports. It's our soul's distress when our hope is placed in uncertain things and unsecurable things. It is the distress or the angst in our soul when our hope is placed in uncertain or unsecurable things. So it, looks, it can look a lot of different ways. It feels like unrest, it feels like restlessness, right? An inability for you, just, for you just to be calm internally, right, in your heart. It can feel like fear, being afraid a lot throughout the course of the year and social situations. It can feel very dark, it can feel like depression, um, it can be anger. Right, you can be very angry about things, but they're not the right way. It can be nervousness, um, just just an unsureness. It can be self-loathing, anger directed toward yourself because you can't make things work the right way. Uh, it can be sleeplessness. Right, you you lay down at night and your mind won't shut off because there's unrest about uncertain things tomorrow or next week or uncertain things from the past day. Indecisiveness. Right? I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Because you're afraid if you make one decision, you, you exclude yourself from other decisions. But it's there. And we all have a lot of those things to different degrees. And it comes from the fact that we've placed our hope at joy and peace, which is what everybody's aiming for. I'm not going to argue for that either. I'm going to assume everybody, Christian and non-Christian, those might not be the words you use, but those are going to be the words you use tonight, that your whole life is really kind of about aiming at joy and peace. But we place our hope at joy and peace in things that are by nature and by definition uncertain and passing ephemeral. Not eternal. That's exactly what Jesus gets at when he says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. All of those things mean something. What is moth? A moth is just a circumstance. Right? A moth is a car accident. A moth is the stock market. A moth is a crazy roommate. A moth is just all the different contingencies of just nature, of just living in this world that you can't predict, that all of a sudden can take away everything you thought you had to have. What rust is, is just time. Over time, things degrade and fall apart. And what thieves are, is just people. People can mess up our plans. Right? And he's saying, Don't make your treasure, right? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Don't make your treasure the thing your heart is centered on. You're all I want. The your one day I have to have, your I can't be happy without. Don't make the answer to that question, your dreams and your hopes, circumstance something that circumstances, time, or people can destroy. You cannot center your life on something that either circumstances, time, or people can destroy and have any hope at not being anxious. You're committing to a lifetime of anxiety when you place your hope on something or a collection of things that time, circumstances, and people could take away at any moment. Because here's something that's true of anything that time, people, or circumstances that can take away. There's at least two things true of those. First of all, they will be taken from you eventually. Death is a billion and O oh against the human race. It's never lost. Well, I lost one time. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> Almost just kicked myself out of ministry. But <laughs> first of all, you will lose everything you've built in this life. Secondly, those things could actually never do what you're asking them to do. You're actually asking them to do something they were built and intended and have the capacity to do. And so asking your goal at academic excellence to unleash joy and peace in your life, which is what most of us are doing, is the equivalent of jumping off a building and flapping your arms and asking your arms to make you fly. They weren't built for that. They're never going to do that, and it's going to end in disaster. Guess what? Your academic excellence was not built for unleashing joy and peace in your life. And you're asking it to do that all the time, and you're wondering why you're stressed. It's because you're asking it to do something it was never built to do. Academic excellence isn't bad, but it's terrible at unleashing joy and peace in your life. A 4.0 can't make you unanxious. Ask the people with 4.0s. Guess what they are? Still anxious. Right? Right? Anxiety is our distress when our hope is placed in something that's uncertain and unsecurable. And at first glance, right, we immediately think, "Yeah, I get that. That totally makes sense." We still don't get it. And here's how I know that we don't get it. Right now, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to be quiet for 10 seconds, It feels like an eternity. Think of one source of anxiety in your life. It could be big or small. Just think of one. I want you to actually pick it out. I want you to have a name or situation in your mind. It could be School, body, parents, roommate, romance, social scene, whatever, money. Think of it. All right. You have that place, that space in your life where there's anxiety. Now, here's the next question I have for you What would need to happen in that area for you to no longer experience anxiety? Take a couple of seconds. Imagine what resolution would look like in that area the kind of resolution where if that really happened that way, I wouldn't have anxiety anymore. Right? The person who's difficult in your life uh, that, that doesn't understand, that produces a lot of anxiety because your friendship with them, maybe because they're your parent, maybe because they're uh, your roommate or your best friend, and they produce a lot of anxiety. And you just think, and you might even be right, they're so stupid and they don't get it. And here's what I'm guessing you started to imagine: if they got it, I wouldn't. They there wouldn't be as much anxiety in my life. If they finally came around and understood that I'm right, and you, I'm agreeing, I'm I'm hypothetically actually agreeing with all of you. You probably are right about them, okay? But your thinking, my guess is, instinctually, is the anxiety would go away if they changed. The anxiety would go away if I aced everything. The anxiety would go away if my parents understood. In other words, you actually instinctively thought anxiety will go away when I finally get what I want in this area, when the circumstances come around to the way I want them to be. Which means, we still didn't understand what Jesus said. Because... What we didn't do, actually what we did do is we imagined ourselves 15 pounds lighter. I'm anxious about my body. I just imagined myself 15 pounds lighter. Then I would be unanxious. What we didn't do is imagine ourselves as the kind of person who is content being 15 pounds heavier. Nobody imagined that. We imagined more success in school, the 4.0. We didn't imagine ourselves being the kind of person that's content with a 3.1. We imagined our roommate or our friend either gone, excoriated, or corrected, right? We didn't imagine ourselves as being the kind of person that is wise and loving and patient enough to care about them where they are. We imagined our parents back together, not us being the kind of child that can love broken parents who will never get back together. And what Jesus is saying is He's saying, you've got to understand that even if you did happen to build up all your dreams, if you actually built up all your treasures on earth and get everything and everyone to behave the way you want, that's just not how anxiety is removed. Getting all your dreams in life is not how to deal with anxiety. The fact that none of us actually imagined ourselves heavier and happy reveals we still haven't heard Jesus. And the fact that we keep thinking the solution is getting everything we want and getting the circumstances lined up, the fact that we still believe that is the source of anxiety. The fact that we still think losing five pounds and doing better in school, get that under control, then we'll feel rested. The fact that we still think that way is why we're anxious. That's what Jesus is saying. Because here's what we have to deal with next. There are three people that exist in the world. These people really do exist. They're groups of people. You might know, you probably do know people in each of these three groups. At least one or two of them. The most important thing you do from this minute on, That's such an over-the-top statement, but I actually kind of believe it, you're like, how many things does he kind of believe? <laughs> kind of believe is a frightening word to hear. But um, these people exist, and I think the most important thing you do tonight is you've got to come up with a way to view the world that accounts for the fact these people exist. And my guess is none of us wants to deal with the fact and account for the fact these people exist. Here's the first category of person that exists. People who have everything and aren't happy. People who got everything they wanted out of life and aren't happy. You have to account for the fact that these people exist. That might even be you. I'm guessing, if it's not you, you know people who've gotten everything they wanted and they are not happy. That should trouble us. Right? Here's, Jim Carrey said this. I wish everyone could get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they could see it's not the answer. John Rockefeller said this. These stories going on. Someone asked how much money is enough. You've probably heard this before. His reply was $1 more. There's a famous interview with Tom Brady after his third Super Bowl about is this enough in life? And he said, no, there's got to be more. This list, I mean, these are just easy celebrity examples. This past week, someone recounted to me how a friend of theirs who is a billionaire, that's with a B, is wildly unhappy and drinking themselves through their sorrow right now. That's billions of dollars. If anybody can buy happiness, it's the billionaires. If you choose to live in a reality where these people don't exist, you think, no, that's not true, then it's not true that people who got all their dreams can still be unhappy, then you're living a fiction. You're not dealing with reality anymore. We think the way out of anxiety is to secure our dreams, and that's just not the case. There's objective, real-world, historical evidence that that's not the case. This isn't even the Bible anymore. This is just like people. We can't deny that. Here's the second group of people that exist that we have to account for. People that have nothing and are happy. These people really exist. You might not know these people because there are not very many of them actually in our country. But there are some, pretty, there are some people that have some bad circumstances. And probably some of you all know some of these people. Both circumstances, relationally, financially, physically, all that kind of stuff. And are happy. I was talking today with a good friend of mine. Bloodwater, is a non-profit um, that seeks to help the AIDS and the water crisis in Africa providing care for HIV-AIDS, and providing clean water for rural villages. One of the board members was in a rural village, and he was checking in at the end of the day, just kind of checking in on the clean water project. This village at the time, they were walking five miles for their clean water, for potable water they could drink, because they were out of water. At the end of the day, Mike, who's one of the board members, Mike, who... You might have heard, about me, talk, uh, heard me talk about before. He was the athletic director at the University of Tennessee when it was the third largest athletic bu- uh, budget in the country. He was, at one point in time, one of the most powerful men in college sports. He's on the board for Bloodwater. Now, he's, end of the day, watch this water project working. It's not, the, the filter's not up and running yet. And he casually says, like, I could use a cup of tea. And this woman came up to him and said, Oh, I have some water. Would you like it? And she turned her jug over into his cup and emptied out her jug of water. And there was no more left. And Mike, right, this high-profile guy, realized he was taking her last water. And he said, I can't take your last water. We, We can't do this. This is not even what we're about. I feel wrong about this. And she smiled, and this is what he said, She, uh, this is what Mike said, she said to him, she said, you don't understand, I have everything. She was going to have to walk five miles for the water for her family and for herself that night to drink. She poured out the last of her water in a rich white man from the United States cup so he could have a cup of tea. And she smiled, and when he refused, she said, you don't understand, I have everything because I have Jesus. These people exist. You got to deal with that. I got to deal with that. People that have nothing. Poor people who pour out the last bit of water they have for rich white people in rural Africa and are happy. You know what she did that night? She probably slept well. Her mind probably didn't run with assignments tomorrow and next week that she's got to do. We have to account for that. Our view of the world has to account for the fact that these people exist. Right? Here's the third category. They're the most terrifying people to deal with. This is the care, the category of Care tippets. What's the name of the book she just that was just published? The Hardest Piece. The Hardest Piece? Okay. We need all need to read this. Uh, she had the life that she wanted. She married her best friends, a, a, a guy she fell in love with at summer camp. It was one of those romances. They had four beautiful, healthy children. If you went to summer camp, you understand that. That's like a sweet thing. If you didn't go to summer camp, you're like, that's weird. <laughs> summer camp people are weird. Don't ask them about their summer camps. It's like asking guys about high school football. You're like, you don't want the stories. You want under. But that's <laughs> married her summer camp, sweetheart. Healthy, beautiful family, four children, lived in Colorado, lived outdoors, was living out the beautiful life in Colorado. She's an incredible, incredibly friendly person, had friends everywhere, connected to people everywhere. People loved her. She loved people. Three years ago at age 36, she was diagnosed with breast cancer and she died two months ago. She blogged through her cancer and you'd be well served to read it. These are some of her final words. My little body has grown tired of the battle and treatment's not helping any longer. But what I see and what I know and what I have is Jesus. He has given me breath. And with it, I pray and I would live well. I pray that I would live well and fade well. By degrees of doing both living and dying as I have moments left to give, I get to draw my people close and kiss them tenderly and speak love over their lives. I get to pray into eternity my hopes and fears for the moments of my loves. I get to laugh and cry and wonder over heaven. I do not feel like I have the courage for this, but I have Jesus and He will provide. He has given me so much to be grateful for. And that gratitude, that wondering over His love, will cover us all and it will carry us and it will carry us in ways that we can't comprehend. She had everything and lost it all. We have to account for the fact that people like Kara Tippett's exist in the world. I actually don't think... I think you should screw midterms and papers due tomorrow and deal with the fact that people who have lost everything, had it all and lost everything, actually are still happy. I think that's the most important... Actual reality you need to wrestle with before you do anything else tonight, before you drink a cup of water or get a bite of food. These three groups of people exist. Here's what we got to learn about anxiety. Anxiety is a terrorist that has no hostages. That's what it is. Because what we think is it does have hostages, that anxiety is holding joy and peace hostage. And it's saying, I'm not going to give them back to you unless you meet all the demands. Unless you get everything under control. Right? Get A's, get the cool kids to like you, make a difference, find your passion, find a significant other, get fit. And it's holding, those hostage, it's holding joy and peace hostage saying, you've got to do all these things if you want me to release joy and peace into your life. And we're panicked and we live out this daily hostage situation. And what's happened to probably all of us is we've forgotten what's happened in the past. That in the past, we've actually met the demands of the terrorists. Right? When you tried to get into Stanford, that was one of the things anxiety was saying. If you don't make the grades to get into Stanford, you're nobody. If you get into Stanford, you're everybody. Right? And you met the demands for getting into Stanford. You met anxiety's demands. Did getting into Stanford... Unleash eternal joy and peace in your life? You met the demands of A's. Did you turn around and see that anxiety released joy and peace into your life? You cut the nasty, difficult person out of your life. Did it unleash joy and peace into your life? We've actually all forgotten that I suspect all of us have real world memories of how we've acquiesced to the demands of anxiety. Get these things for yourself. And the anxiety didn't release the hostages. And here's why it didn't release the hostages. It never actually had them in the first place. It was bluffing. We met the panic demands and we've forgotten that when we opened the cellar door last time, when the anxiety said, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to get this under control. We forgot last time we met all the demands and we opened the cellar door and guess what? Joy and peace weren't there. It never had them. The terrace is bluffing, and the terrorist speaks with a lot of voices. It speaks right with our own imagination, our own voice. It speaks with maybe the voice of your parents. It might speak with the voice of the culture around us. The culture, uh, it might be speaking with the voice of your friends, right? The dream and the hope and the circumstances that you're giving everything you have to. Those, that dream and that hope and those circumstances don't have joy and peace to offer you. And I'm guessing we can all remember times in the past where they were supposed to and we didn't get it. So what is joy and peace? We'll talk about that for a moment and then kind of go on to what to do. Um, and this is borrowing from Tim Keller. He, his definition is, it's a spiritual buoyancy that comes from rejoicing in God. A spiritual buoyancy that comes from rejoicing in God. And the important word here is actually buoyancy. Because it means resilient. It means it's something that's not destroyed by suffering or failure. It doesn't mean... The biblical conception of joy doesn't mean that there's no suffering and no failure. It means that joy is something that's not threatened by suffering or failure. That it remains. It's buoyant. Real joy remains. And this is where the resilience and the unsinkableness of actual joy in the gospel comes from. It comes from a focus on the unchangeable privileges we have in the gospel. A focus on the unchangeable privileges we have by being in Jesus. These are those unchangeable privileges. right? I failed, but God loves me. I'm a sinner, but God has forgiven me. I'm weak, but God is for me. I'm lonely, but the Holy Spirit is with me. I'm ugly, but God treasures me. I'm hurting, but I will be with my Heavenly Father. I feel like no one cares, but the cross is God saying, this is how much I care. Those are the privileges of grace. Time, circumstances, and people can't take any of those away. Joy doesn't mean that adverse circumstances don't come into your life. It means that a focus on the blessings you have in Jesus make you unsinkable in those circumstances. That's why Paul can write letters from prison like he does to the church at Philippi. And he says, I pray for you with so much joy. He's writing it from a jail cell. I'm writing with you, to you for, with so much joy because you know Jesus and I know Jesus. So even from from prison, Paul is unsinkable in his joy because he says, "I know that Jesus loves you, and I know that you know His grace." And I have a deeper thing than these present circumstances. I have a deeper thing. So Paul's not sad. Or, or, sorry, actually, so Paul is sad, but not despondent. Joy in this life is not the absence of suffering. It's the ability to rejoice in the love of Jesus in the midst of suffering. And everything, we el- everything else we chase is us trying to avoid inevitable suffering. God's trying to prepare you to be strong, joyful, and peaceful in the inevitable suffering. Jesus is saying, in the kingdom of my love and grace, I prepare you to become the kind of person that can weather suffering. So you can run away from it chasing silly dreams, which is naïve, That's the interesting thing about Silicon Valley is how naive it is. Smartest people in the world, incredibly naive about the ability to avoid suffering because I think we all still believe we can actually fix it, right, with enough apps and technology. Right? So you can chase silly dreams thinking you can avoid suffering and it's naive or you can find something to hold on to to weather suffering but that means the thing you hold on to has to be the kind of thing that's immovable, and that thing is the kingdom of God. It's the love of Jesus. If you want to be free from anxiety, you have to hold on to Jesus. I'll close with three practical applications. Practical-ish applications, right? How do we get there? The first thing is also from Paul's letter in Philippians. Philippians 4.6 when he talks about anxiety. The first thing you have to do is you've got to start praying in the right order. Paul says this, Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer, with thanksgiving, then make your request known to God. Paul recognizes we've got to deal with things in life, and they're hard, we need to pray about them. Right? I've got to get through this, I need to talk to God about how to get through this, I don't know where it's going to go. But he says, Start your prayer by thanking God. Offer God thanksgiving, then make your request known to God. So start your prayer and say, God, I have to get through this. I don't know where it's going to go. Thank you that you're good. Thank you that you're wise. Thank you that you're trustworthy. Thank you that you're full of mercy. Thank you already for this thing I'm about to ask you for. And what's happened is when you begin to pray that way, what you've done is you've set your heart up to trust God so that when you do offer your request, and His goal is your holiness and your happiness and your joy. When you offer your request... You have set yourself up to then trust Him in the way He answers it. You enter into the situation trusting instead of entering into the an- situation anxious. Thank God first before you aim for anything in life. It sets your heart in the right posture. It gives you the capacity to maybe be less anxious. Secondly, stealing from Tim Keller at this point, speak to your heart, don't just listen to it. In Philippians 4, Paul goes on next to say, Now, whatever's true and whatever's honorable and whatever's just and whatever's commendable, anything of excellence worthy of praise, think on these things. And he's talking about the stuff he's been talking about before. Now, these words are not generic. He says, What you've learned from me, Paul, practice those things, and the God of peace will be with you. Think about the excellent things of Jesus. Just things, commendable things, things worthy of praise, the things Paul's been talking about, and the God of peace will be with you. Here's what he's saying. We've got to speak back to our hearts. He is actually saying you have to be intentional about the way you think. You have to think some things back to your heart. Because anxiety is letting your heart talk to you all the time and never talking back to it. Because what your heart says right in bed tonight is, here's what I've got to do tomorrow. Like, we've got we to change the way we eat tomorrow. we got to do better. we got to work out. we got to churn out the bibliography. we got to get the outline done. And your heart's just nailing you with all these things. You're like, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Oh, man, yeah, I know. I'm never going to get to sleep tonight if you don't shut up, heart, right? We all know this feeling. Anxiety is not the absence. Anxiety, actually, is the absence of thought. It's just letting your heart run away with these. And peace breaks in when you think to talk back to your heart. When you start to think these excellent things and say, heart, you got to chill out. i need—I got some things I need to say to you right now. Because our hearts can be pretty dumb. Right? Heart, I'm not my work. Right? Heart, I'm not valued by how much I weigh. I'm not devalued if I drop a class. Heart, you need to know, I'm not unlovable because of my family's background. Our hearts can be really stupid. And you need to tell your heart, Heart, I am made in the image of God. You're wrong on this. I'm not unlovable. I'm made in the image of God. I was broken by my own sin. And by the way, heart, you kind of had a big part in that, right? So we're already (laughs) frustrated with that. but, (laughs) But you need to know I'm forgiven in Jesus. And I'm not guilty anymore, heart. And I'm secure and I'm loved. If you want peace, you've got to think these high and lovely things of the gospel back to your heart when your heart starts running away. Think on these things. Don't just listen to your heart. <sighs> Lastly, what does it mean to seek first the kingdom? That's how Jesus closes this passage. And today, I spent a lot of time with, actually, the campus minister I was interned for. And Elizabeth was interned for. For I was with him for three years. Elizabeth was four. So he's very important in our life. And as we were talking about this passage, I said, how do you apply this? Like Jesus has, he's like, here's what you do. And when Jesus says, here's what you do, we should pay attention. He's like, seek first the kingdom. And John just said, I got nothing. I don't know. I don't know how to apply that. And this is, as we begin to talk, I just kind of give you all our conversation. This is how it unfolded. This is how we talked. We just said, it's hard because this is not a, you just need to feel differently about some things kind of talk. I mean, sometimes we talk up here and it just and the application is, hey, I think you need to feel differently about some things. And it's not even just a, we we need to believe some things differently kind of application. It is those things, but it's more. It does mean that there's some things we need to believe differently, some things you can't believe anymore if this is true. So you can't believe, you have to go, I can't believe anymore, losing weight will make me happy. You do have to change that belief. That's part of the application, right? It means that you can't feel anymore like midterms and projects are the end of the world. You can't feel that way anymore. That's part of the application. It means that you can neither believe nor feel like being average is a failure. You can't believe that that's failure, that that's immoral, that that's evil, that's worthy of judgment, that that disqualifies you as a person. can't believe that or think that anymore, that being average is failure. So yeah, it does mean that we need to not feel some ways we feel, it means we need to not stop believing some of the things we believe because they're false. It means at least that, but it also means more than that. Obviously Jesus says something more than that. Because it does mean that whatever you're driving at, you can't drive at it anymore. You can't. right? We, we, we want to TED Talk Jesus, right? Which is like, oh, that's interesting. That challenges the way I think about the world. Oh my gosh, I don't know how to be the same person anymore. You know what I'm going to do right after this? Not think about it ever again and not do anything <laughs> with it. right? That's what we like to do with TED Talk. <laughs> but it makes us more in, in, interesting conversationalists. But, Jesus is saying, no, no, you can't drive at what you're driving at anymore. It has to change if you want any hope at not being anxious. You've got to drive at the kingdom of God. It's the only lasting thing. Everything else you're driving at is the reason that you're actually anxious and unhappy. That means we actually do have to act differently on some things. And I don't know what that means for everybody. Right? All of us are driving at not just one thing, but a lot of different things. All of us have a really hard time actually being honest about almost any of those things with ourselves, let alone with others. But this means our heart has to latch itself onto the true treasure, the kingdom of God, the righteousness and the goodness of Jesus, the privileges of the security that comes with knowing that we are united to Jesus by grace. Here's here's what part of it maybe means, right? If If at some point in the last year there was a situation where someone needed you, And their need for you was going to mess things up badly for you. Right? A difficult situation in the middle of a stressful time for you because you have school or you have other obligations. If it was wildly inconvenient and it cost you to help them, and you helped them anyways, and when you helped them, guess what? You didn't come out still smooth. You actually, your grades suffered a little bit. You actually failed to meet the expectations of your boss or you upset some other aspect of your life if that kind of thing is not happening in your life regularly then the kingdom doesn't have your heart and that means that means you don't know the rest that Jesus offers you and maybe you haven't discovered his grace yet if you haven't sacrificed some of your dreams in the face of other people's needs then Jesus is saying we don't get it And what we want, our instinct in all these kind of situations is, well, what's the threshold then? You said often, if that's not happening often. What do you mean by often? Right? What's going to be on the test? How much is enough? And the answer is, I don't know how much is enough. And I'm pretty sure that when we ask questions like that, it reveals that we still have a divided heart between two kingdoms. And we're asking, how much do I have to pay homage to kind of generically being a Christian for Jesus before I can get back to my other stuff so how much is enough actually means we don't get it. What Jesus is saying here when he talks about God's provision is he's saying God will provide you with what you need. What you need is not what you think you need. You have, in the love of Jesus, everything that you need. You have resurrection. We haven't even opened that one up yet. Right? That means that the gospel frees us. This is the implication. It frees us from centering everything in our life on our own needs and our own preferences and the tyranny of our own dreams. You're free to explore the possibility of living a life that is just completely acted out sympathy. That's actually what your life is. Sympathy that you act out. That you actually have the heart of Jesus for everyone and for anyone. We think if I live that that's crazy because if I live that way, I would never be happy. But here's the question. Is this way of living unleashing joy and happiness into our life? Is this plan working? Stanford and Silicon Valley, is a place built on entrepreneurial spirit and questioning everything. Let's question everything all the way down. Let's question the very premise, getting what you want makes you happy. Nobody's actually questioning that, except for the Bible. And the alternative Jesus offers to that kind of thinking, getting everything you want is what makes you happy, is this. You'll be happy when you confess sin and experience the unconditional love of God. And if you experience that, you'll be free from anxiety because you'll realize your anxiety was really about getting the things of the world And trying to get them to do what only God could do. You'll actually realize your whole life was about trying to absolve yourself. you realize, oh, God just absolved me at the cross. He received me as beautiful. I don't have to pay anyone anything anymore. I'm received. I'm loved. At some point, it's going to dawn on you that that's what you're trying to do with your whole life, Christian or not. And if you know Jesus, you'll find out, well, so I'm free from that pursuit now. Then you're free to go pursue something more noble and more lovely than your U-shaped dreams. And the Bible calls that pursuit the kingdom of God or the will of God in every area of your life. It's called loving God and loving your neighbor. Not for your sake, not because it's rewarding. You actually already have your reward. You're not doing it, I love this because it's so rewarding for me. You have your reward, you're loved by God. But you do it for His sake because you think He's great. And you do it for people's sake because they're made in His image and they're hurting and they need help. All of us do, even Stanford students, right? If you're in Jesus, you have everything. That means you're free. Go serve God. Go love your neighbor. You can give away your last drops of water, even if the next glass is five miles away. Let's pray.